Good morning. I told first service I thought they were going to be louder, and I might be right. Good morning. That'll work, I'll tell them. Guys, it has been a long, long time since I've brought a message here at first. And I didn't realize how long it had been. And I told first service I didn't realize how long until I saw Ben Headley up here. And before he started giving his sermon, he introduced himself. Ben Headley introduced himself. Now, when I came here in 90, his family had been here. When I came on staff, he had been on staff for quite a while. And even after I left, he was still here. So I did the math, and I realized it's been about eight years since I've shared a message here. Eight years. So I guess as a courtesy, you know, for those who don't know me, my name is Mike Dean. And for those of you who do know me, my name is Mike Dean. So, and I apologize for those who don't know me, because I'm a great guy, and you've missed out. No, but it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm not lying. No. It has been a long time, and there is a process in getting ready to speak and we, we all have one. And James talked last week about how his was pleasantly interrupted by God. You know, but, you know, whether it's prayer, translate, translate, commentary, or whatever it is, I haven't done it for a long, long time. But I also have a friend named Jim Bugelman who grew up in this church, and he's a minister on the other side of the mountain. So he and I have breakfast about once a month. So he says, hey, I heard you're preaching. And I'm like, how did you hear I was preaching? So there is a secret network. Don't say anything private. But... He said, hey, well, we can talk about your sermon when we have breakfast. And I said, no. There is something private and personal, I think, about that preparation, though I don't think it has to be. And so we're having breakfast, and we're talking about my sermon. And he's just, he's kind of, you know, kind of filling me in, letting me know about his process. And those who know Jim or know me, I take my relationship with God very seriously. But I don't take much of anything else very seriously. So our conversation kind of, steadily declines, still within God, but declines into the places we've spoke, the things we've said, the things we've said we shouldn't have said, and so on. And it keeps going until we're starting to laugh and talk about things that ministers say. And there are certain cliches that ministers across the board, whether you're in the same country, the same state, will say from the pulpit. And so we start talking about this and how funny they are, maybe not to you guys, but to, to ministers, how funny they are when you're in the pew and you get to hear them. And how horrible they are when you walk off the stage and you said one. So an example would be, I mean, a minister is just, I mean, he is, just really has you engaged. And you start thinking about, okay, maybe I need to make a change. Maybe there's a place where I need growth. And all of a sudden he stops and goes, and I'm not just preaching to all of you. I'm preaching to myself, okay? Now that may not seem funny to us, but for ministers, we're thinking, great, how many visitors are thinking, their minister has trouble with this, you know? No, you just, we unpack it. We understand that he's saying we're all in the same boat. That what I'm sharing with you is not me being on you. It's just saying this is what God wants for all of us. We unpack it. We understand it. But there is one cliche that across the board, all the ministers that I've talked to agree is the, the faux pas, the main do not use cliche. And that is when the minister is speaking to a group, and once again, he's halfway through a sermon, he's 15 minutes in, you're engaged, and he stops, and he gets different demeanor. And he stops and goes, I just want to stop right now and be totally honest with you. And I'm like, you've been talking to me for 20 minutes. I won't, you know, but, you know, we giggle, but we, we unpack it. We understand what he's saying, okay? 
We understand you're saying, hey, I'm going to share something personal. Okay? It's going to embarrass probably myself, my kids. If I come back next week with bruises, it embarrass my wife. I say that because my wife's right here. But we understand it. We unpack it. The same thing goes for Scripture. Sometimes a walk to Jericho is just a walk to Jericho. Sometimes fighting a Philistine is just fighting a Philistine. But in Scripture, whether it's long verses like last week or short like this week, you unpack them and you get the meaning. So before any further, I just want to stop and be totally honest, okay? I don't like kids. I don't like kids. I'm not going to make eye contact over here. Um, for those of you who do know me, I work with youth. And in the past, I've worked with youth quite a bit. But now I'm starting to work with them again, mid-high school, sometimes checking kids in downstairs. I've also been volunteering at an elementary school for over 15 years. And this is year two working at the elementary school. But I say it again, I don't like kids. Okay. Now, that needs to be unpacked, too, before I get run off. But I will, and I'll come back to that. But first, let's get back into our narrative of Matthew. So last week, James used a word that I have been praying and focused on for the last week now, and it's integrated its way into this morning's message, and that is engage. He was talking about our church kind of being in flux and, and transition, and that there has to be this engagement going on with all of us. But I think the idea of engaging fits Jesus perfectly. When he deals with people, even when he deals with groups, it's super intentional, and it's super purposeful, and it's very focused. There's no walk-by healings, you're healed, you're no longer, you're poor. I mean, he doesn't do that. It's always this engagement. And even the one person that tried to do the walk-by and touches the corner of him, he stops her. She's been hemorrhaging for years. He stops her to engage. Okay, that is, to me, the perfect way in this scripture and with Jesus to see the why and not just the how of his ministry, especially through Matthew. So we see him last week. The last thing that's said in the verse was that the Pharisees are making their comments. He's getting rid of demons by the Lord of demons. And once again, Jesus, undeterred, continues his ministry. And so we pick up in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus is going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. This is Jesus' third tour through Galilee. Okay? But this time... I'm not sure how much the disciples understood. Sometimes they had knucklehead moments, but it would be the last time they got to see him interact with others before they were sent out. And as we move forward, we get to see a, I guess you could say, I'd say everything with Jesus is intimate and personal, but that's how we would refer to it. You know, we like to see these windows of, I want to say human Jesus, but, you know, we talk about Jesus being all God and all man, and so we kind of wait for these little moments to see what does it look like when all God and all man gets mad, when he feels sad. And a lot of times we kind of find ourselves in the same verse when we're looking for that throughout Scripture, and that's John eleven thirty five. 35. Anybody know it off the top? Jesus wept. And we see that, and we look at this little window to see Jesus and how he would respond. I think today's Scripture is a large window. 
to see what that looks like as emotion hits him as he sees this crowd. Now, I like study. I think James and I, this story, he and I agree. And I like digging into languages, and I like unpacking them quite a bit more. So as I'm looking at this idea of he had compassion on the crowd, I look up compassion. And when you're studying and you come across this phrase, came to mean, when you see came to mean, that basically means at an hour, because that's what you're going to do to your study. It means a word has changed throughout time that still holds on to the same truth, but has been watered down a bit. How many of you guys have ever heard the word dude? Okay. How many of you guys have ever used the word dude? Okay. If you're not familiar with the word dude, feel free to drop by my house. Anytime my son, who's here, plugs in his Xbox and puts on his headphones, this gentleman becomes the Lothario of, of linguistics. I mean, the semantics magician with the word dude. I'm in my office studying, and I hear the following. Dude, dude, dude. Did you see that dude? Where'd that dude go? Dude, dude. And I'm like, this is one word that he has turned into an adjective, a noun, and a verb. And I am, I'm amazed. There are no scholarships for this, but I'm still amazed. Okay? But even the word dude. If you go back to, like, say, when I'm in mid-school, it was less common. Dude kind of was used to point out something that might not belong. Like, oh, look at that dude. Or it was the weird, weird, creepy kids that hung out on the field. They were the ones calling each other dude. Hey, dude, dude, dude. Okay, it just meant something that might not be quite normal or stood out. It wasn't as common as it is now. But you go back even further, and where does the word dude come from? I didn't know until I looked it up. Dude was usually some guy from the east who was coming to the West to get some of that cowboy lifestyle, okay? Not, not recently, but back then when cowboys were cowboys, you know? They see these stories from the West, they decide, I'm going to go do that. They've never worked a hard day in their life, okay? But yet, they're going to go be cowboys. Well, when you get there and they realize what cowboys do, that's where you get a dude ranch. A dude ranch was basically a spa for these soft Easterners that came and wanted to be cowboys, so dude meant something that did not belong. It was out of place. It was abnormal in its environment, which holds true to when I was in middle school, that same kind of concept, but a little watered down. I would say it's nowhere near what it is now, but you get the idea. And the same thing happens with the word compassion. Okay, It hasn't gone the way of the dude, but there has been a watered down effect to it. So this word that's translated from the Greek, Jesus' word for compassion, whether in the parables, it's always he had compassion, he felt compassion. This word is for him and him alone. So in the normal translation, you would get pity and care. But because it's a came to mean, you'd get something different. You would get a yearning in the bowels. Okay. Now, our modern vernacular is different. A yearning in the bowels means something a lot different. Okay. But still imperative, right? So that was this idea that it was something at the core. And back then, in ancient times, organs and parts of the body were identified with different things. Today, it's like, oh, I hold you in my heart, or I have butterflies in my stomach. Well, compassion was in the bowels, okay? One, because of location. It was the core of a person, okay? And there are certain things in the body that will drive you to action and words, okay? This being one of them, okay? So it was considered the seat of compassion, this yearning in the bowels, and it would cause, in both ways, would cause distress. 
So, but it's also not a foreign idea to Scripture. It's one that's used in the Old Testament. If somebody, or if all of you would turn, you don't have to, but I'd like to be able to use your Bible. I'll say that under my breath so nobody knows. There are Bibles in the pews. <clears throat> if you go to Genesis 43, starting in 27, it says, Then he asked them about their welfare and said, Is your, is your old father well, of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, your, our father, is well, and he is alive. They bowed down in homage. As he lifted his eyes, he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. He said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke? This is Joseph in Egypt. He's already seen his brothers. You don't recognize them once. They've gone back, and they've brought back his younger brother. It says, he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother. And he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. This is a great translation and I'm not a study snob, James is. No, we like original languages. So I go back, can you pop it up there? Here we go. This is original translation. And Joseph made haste, for his bowels did yearn upon his brother. And he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there. Guys, he felt this, this love, this care, compassion so deeply that he had to remove himself from the situation. Okay, this was his brother, his only brother that shared the mother. This type of compassion is beyond pity and care. Okay? Compassion that we show pity is saying, oh, I'm sorry that guy is homeless. Right? We, we see more and more people that are needing help and are in front of us. And it's not care, well, I'll roll down my window, here's all our God bless. This is the type of compassion that moves you to action. This is the, I'm going to pull my car aside get myself out of my car, walk to this person, and engage with this person. And we thank God that this is the kind of compassion that Jesus had and that he showed us. It caused an action. It caused some kind of reaction that then benefits those who he's feeling this for. So he sees Benjamin, and he is immediately moved. Jesus sees this crowd and is immediately moved. So why did he have compassion for them? It says because they were harassed, disheartened, disfaithed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now we've seen throughout scripture this idea of sheep and shepherd. Throughout all scripture, you got numbers where God's saying he's going to gather up the people, his flock, gather up his flock. But this is more like Jeremiah. This is more like, woe to you who scatter my flock and don't feed them and it's a uh, touch of righteous indignation going on right here for these harassed sheep. And the strange thing is, like sheep without a shepherd, okay? These were not Gentiles. These were Jews. And these were Jews that had access to a synagogue. And these are Jews that had access to leadership. At the time, it says there were over 6,000 Pharisees. There were countless laymen that worked in the synagogues. There were over 20,000 lower priests. There were the Sadducees, who basically were like Pharisees at dude ranches. They're a little more relaxed. Um, and then there was the Essenes also, a group that was so ready for the coming of the Christ that they 
moved out of the city and ostracized themselves and they missed the Christ. But the point is, they have all this access to leadership. How bad was the leadership if he were to say, like sheep without a shepherd? So as we move in Matthew further past today, we'll get to the woes, which are kind of indictments to the leadership. I think this is very much an indictment also, okay? Like sheep without a shepherd, over 6,000 Pharisees, 20,000 lower priests plus, but they are like sheep without a shepherd. So to finish or to continue with a call to action, but also the indictment, he says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So what did he expect from this leadership? Now, Christ being born ushered in the kingdom. This is the coming of the kingdom of God, the gospel that we now preach. He didn't expect them to be completely knowledgeable and understanding and helping with this ushering. When he came on the scene, they should have been, been the voice of God and of Scripture. Not adding to, not making them the type of Jews that they think they should be and judging them according to their standard, but to share the Scripture to see them as God saw them, and to engage them accordingly. That was their duty. But they like to add, and unfortunately, they like to burden. And, well, I wouldn't say they like to burden. In their, their human wisdom, they burden and distressed people that were trying to connect with God. But I do like that Jesus also says the workers are few. Now, as I said, I like to unpack things but you don't want to unpack where there's nothing to unpack. Then you end up making stuff up and it goes awry. But I like to think, as he's saying the workers are few, it could have been two things. One, few, actual few, because there were some leaders that he had contact with that we see kind of turning and heading the right way. Or it could have been, and the workers are few. You know, pointing to himself, they are very few, here I am, there are few workers. I don't know. But I do get a little more of a smile at what comes next, where it says, Entreat, pray to God earnestly, the Lord of the harvest to send laborers in the harvest. Now, we've seen Ben, we've seen... Uh, you're killing me. James, there we go. <laughs> a little more study on my part. I know James. You know, talk about the knucklehead disciples, Right? how they seem to get it one minute and this epiphany happens and they seem on board and the next minute they don't know anything. Well, they're asked to pray for workers in the harvest. Okay. You got to feel or at least think that one or two of these knuckleheads are clicking like, wait, he's, he's talking about me. You know, but you'd hope for that. But they will soon find out that they are going to be put into the harvest. And once again, the original translation really talks about them being thrust out. So whether they knew or not, I'm not sure, but they're going to find out. But the question is, and I think, I mean, I haven't had any answers to the contrary, is the harvest still plentiful? Yes, no, maybe so. Yeah, I agree. You know, and I see things like them telling us or reading that there are over 30,000 Christian denominations or splits. And I see that as truly awesome, and I see that as truly horrible. But guess what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't affect us. If you follow Jesus, guess what? You're a worker in the harvest. And there are certain things for workers to do and to follow. Number one, it's on the job training. I get to baptize my youngest son this morning, 
Now we've talked and discussed to see you know what he understands. Does he does he get the idea? Does he know who Jesus is? But I also told him, I said, son, you may not know as much as your brother. Your brother may not know as much as me, and I may not know as much as the next guy. But that is part of the growth in God. So it's on the job training. We don't stop while we're training. We have to keep working. There are no breaks, and there's no retirement. And ultimately, there are no borders, no walls, no borders to this harvest. So now others, this is just a short list of what we've been asked as, as Christians, as followers of God, to, to do. And some might see this as harsh. Well, you just told me that the Pharisees are burdening their people. But yet, here's this list of things you want me to follow. And for those who don't know Jesus' burden and yoke being easy and light, it may sound that way. But guess whose job it is to share and to explain and to teach people why that burden is easy and light. That's us. That is us to engage, to teach of the harvest, to teach of the Lord of the harvest. Which brings me to this, not liking kids. I know, it's the best segue ever. i got to get that tattooed. And now this, I don't like kids. But it brings me to not liking kids. Some of them are looking at me like, we knew it. No. Let, let me explain. In mid to Thousands, yeah, in the mid-2000s, I had gone majorly astray. I had made work my new master, and I was a good, good servant, okay? I worked, and I worked a lot, and I didn't care about too much else, and I neglected my family, and I neglected my church pretty much completely, and I also got into some of the same old bad stuff I did in my youth and got into a pretty, pretty horrible place, and I know I said, when you serve Jesus, you don't take breaks. I was not on break. I was serving a different master. And all of a sudden, my wife, hope I don't embarrass her again, lets me know that she is pregnant with our third child, Olive. And I get smacked in the head so hard by God. And I am so thankful for that. Because upon that news, a lot of the stuff I was doing, I stopped cold turkey. Did I still have to grow out of a bunch of it? Did I still have issues going forward? Absolutely. But that minute that I got smacked in the head with that news and stopped some of my foolishness, I realized I had to engage right away with God, with the church. And so I show up here, a place that's super familiar with me, and Ben Headley is pretty much the only one there during the day when I show up. And he's working on, what do we call that room now? It used to be called the lab. What do we call it? The youth room. Youth room, good idea. They call it the youth room. But upstairs, originally, it was this new design with new paint and fancy stuff, and it was called the lab. Well, it was just being painted and kind of put together. So I went up there, and I taped some walls for some paint and was helping out and got talking to Ben. And basically, Ben and I talked, and he engaged me where... I was where I need to be, and I was able to be candid. And as a result of that, I ended up working with youth at the time for a lot of years, a lot of good times. You know, I ended up getting a lot more straight in my life. I got to go back to Bible college. I was ordained. I mean, not everything was all of a sudden perfect and shiny, but that moment of being engaged once again allowed me to turn around and do the same thing and so forth. So I like kids. I do. I like kids. I, but you know what? Not all the time. 
I mean, I, I work in elementary school and I work in behavior. So, I mean, it's, yeah. I, but I love them. I, lo- I, I do. I love you all. Okay. Sometimes I'm a weird pill to swallow as far as being a sponsor, but I like kids most of the time. I love kids all of the time. But as much as I love working with youth, I don't get up in the mornings before work or before youth and go, yeah, I'm passionate. I get to work with kids. It's not in me. It's just not in me. But what I can do is I can get up and go, yeah, I'm passionate. I get to serve Jesus. Yes, I can do that. The two don't contradict. I love kids. Do I have this overdriving passion to work with them? No. I just, not by luck, I don't believe in luck, just recently took over missions. I don't have that, yeah, missions! But I do have, yeah, I love God. And guess what? I'm going to do missions phenomenally to the best of my ability like I do with youth because I love Jesus. Now, guys, sometimes we are blessed to use our talents, and our gifts exactly where we think they should be. And that's part of the issue. When we do something artistic here and I can get in on it, I'm like, yeah. But you know what? Not all the time. I surprised, where's Jimmy at? Jimmy. I surprised him in first service. I forgot I was, to tell him I was going to talk about him. Um, <laughs> me and Jimmy have slowly gotten to know each other more and more as years have gone by. But one thing I feel that I can say confidently is if he could sing or play an instrument tomorrow, it would not stop him from doing something in the harvest and in the kingdom. He would continue to serve here at church. He'd find some way. We've seen the same thing with Tim. As Tim has moved away from music, he's moved on to something else. And this isn't even the harvest outside the doors. I know that Jimmy, if he weren't up here on stage singing and playing instrument, he wouldn't slow down here, but he also wouldn't slow down outside of work. I mean, not sorry, outside the church, at work. And same thing as we've actually seen in practice with Tim. As he gets closer to retirement, you know, (laughs) it'll change. What he does in the harvest will change what he does at church. But the harvest is everywhere we're at. So the reason I say I don't like kids, other than to embarrass my wife, is to sometimes it presents dialogue. All the people that I'm around, well, 90% of the time work with kids, Okay. But then there's an opening to engage, but also to remind myself of this, and that is passion for the kingdom, to have some passion in you, to have some skill set, some talent, and want to use it for God is awesome. Wanting to serve Jesus is perfect. It just may not be the way we think. And if we can get over ourselves when entering the harvest, we are going to we are going to do great things because, for, and with God if we can get past our own ideals. But also, part of that is that compassion aspect. We have to, if we're going to emulate Christ and we are going to work in the harvest, as we've been directed, we have to have compassion. And compassion, it reminds us of an absolute need to be moved by others' needs. Not just to have a feeling, not just to have a sentiment, but to be physically moved by the needs of other people. And I know that can be scary because with feeling needs and with engaging with others, they may ask something of us. You know, we like that clean-cut engagement of, oh, you need this, yeah, I'll make it happen. They may need something from us that 
you know, might interrupt the schedule. It might do these things. But guys, engagement is, is just that. You know, we also use the word engagement for before you get married. That's, it's a pretty serious state of things. But we have to be willing to be moved in, by other people's needs. It's just a must of the harvest. And the harvest has need, guys. Every day when we leave our house, we can see it. We can feel it. I mean, it, it's just all around us. There's no avoiding it. It's like when we are, I'm pretty sure everybody's gone swimming. It is similar to that, like being in water. That need of the harvest encompasses us everywhere we go. And we can't avoid it anymore. We can't ignore it. We can't wait for the perfect situation with our skill set and the way we want to do things before we engage with people. Passion in your method, awesome. Passion for Jesus will allow you to do things that aren't necessarily in your wheelhouse working with youth and love it because you end up loving them and you end up continuing to show your love for Jesus. So the last thing I just want to end with is to not get burdened down with that idea, with those ideals, but to truly be unburdened by engaging exactly where you see a need and rely on God to sometimes to move you from need to need. I like to schedule, I like to plan, but sometimes I just have to remember that I am clay in God's hands and to engage every need that I am moved to engage with. Would you guys pray with me, please? Lord God, I thank you for this this day, another day of life, and that uh, so many have decided to spend that time in a way that is honoring you. Lord, help us to get past ourselves. Um, we thank you for every talent and for every skill that you have given us and for the effort to, to increase and to build those skills. Lord, please do not let these things be a barrier to us engaging in the harvest. We, we thank you for the blessing to be able to use them, but Lord, allow us to be clay in your hands, to be put where you would want us and where you need us and to fill the need. Lord, we thank you that you had people engage with us and pull us from the harvest and give us the strength and the desire and the patience in dealing and engaging and in loving those uh, still in the harvest. I thank you for all things in your son's name. Amen.